Religious freedom is not just under attack in the United States, but around the world. Sadly, you wouldn't be able to tell this by listening to most media. You also wouldn't know that it's actually Christians who are among the most persecuted around the world. What are we doing to help them? Has the U.S. government been effective in helping vulnerable religious minorities? Has the church been effective? These are tough but necessary questions which require us to look not only at intentions, but actual real-world results. Welcome to Religious Freedom Matters. I'm your host, Andrea Pachati bayer director of The Conscience Project. We've teamed up with the National Catholic Register to bring you a podcast series to help explain why religious freedom matters. Joan Desmond, senior editor at the National Catholic Register, is joining me by phone as we discuss international religious freedom. Thanks for joining me, Joan. You're welcome. Joan, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about your experience and especially your experience in some of these hot spots across the world? love to. I mean, it's amazing because right now we're covering domestic religious freedom issues like the recent Philadelphia foster care case decided unanimously. But I've actually been dealing with international religious freedom issues for some time. Back in the 1980s, I, I lived abroad in Asia, and I actually went on a fact-finding mission to Nepal, which is a Hindu country and where religious freedom is an issue with Christians suffering discrimination and definitely treated as second-class citizens. Seen religious freedom issues crop up in India, which is on the one hand a society that respects all religion on the books, but in reality, Christians and Muslims can also be second-class citizens. And I've also visited Pakistan, where the plight of Christians today remains a huge issue, with some leading figures from the Pakistan Christian Church now closely watched by people all over the world, in particular facing problems like blasphemy laws. Now, I'm so excited that you bring that experience plus your sharp acumen as a news reporter to be able to ask the tough questions. And we've also brought in Tom Farr, president of the Religious Freedom Institute based in Washington, D.C. And Tom is joining me here in person in Guadalupe Radio Network's Washington studio. A special thanks to GRN for allowing us to record here. And welcome, Tom. Great to be with you, Andrea. Now, Tom, you've been in the trenches for quite some time advocating for religious freedom, and Joan wanted to ask a little bit about what you're currently working on. Yeah, Joan and I go back a long time, and uh, indeed, I started in the field of international religious freedom because I was an American diplomat when the Office of International Religious Freedom was created in 1998, and I joined that office and became very interested in it along with my Catholic faith, and it came together as I worked in that office. And then when I left, I taught for a while and ran a religious freedom project at Georgetown and now have the Religious Freedom Institute, which is a nonprofit that defends religious freedom for everyone everywhere. It's based on my Catholic faith, but it's also based on the idea that this is good for societies. It's certainly good for individuals. And uh, around the world, people are suffering because of the kind of persecution that Joan was talking about. RFI has been developing some fantastic programs to bolster Americans' understanding of the benefits of religious freedom, and I'd like to encourage our listeners to check out these at the RFI website. It's religiousfreedominstitute.org. But to set the stage, let's first talk about some of the latest reports and findings on the state of religious freedom globally. Joan mentioned hotspots like Pakistan and India. Tom, what are some of the key findings, and in particular, 
How are Christians and other religious minorities faring in some of these tough hotspots across the globe? Well, you know, there's been these reports for well over a decade, every year, and there's a disturbing and amazing consistency among them. It never gets better. It, you have little blips on the screen, but you know, one, one area of the world will get a little bit better for a little bit of time, but then it gets worse. We see Christians as minorities around the world facing uh, terrible persecution in some cases and mere invidious discrimination in others, which simply means that maybe they're able to worship and go to Mass, but that's about it. They have to keep their heads down. They're not considered citizens in their own countries. So that has been standard across the years. It is still bad. It is worse today probably in China than it has ever been one of the real terrible spots in the world. Another, of course, is North Korea, which has been a horror spot for Christians and others. Sudan is a place that has marginally gotten better, which is a little bit of good news. That's an example of where you can look at some, some mild improvements. Christians are, throughout the Middle East, subject to persecution. And I want to emphasize that the problem here is, in part, governments. Sometimes it's simply corruption on the part of governments. In other words, they can't do anything or they don't want to do anything. And the real persecutors are private actors, if you will, sometimes terrorists, terrorist groups or mobs. In India is a place where, as Joan said on paper, it looks pretty good. The Constitution looks good. James Madison had a great line about parchment barriers. It's one thing to have something in your Constitution. It's quite another if everybody ignores it problem, I might add, that we have begun to see emerge in the United States, our own country. And this is important because U.S. leadership is important in the world. So this is a grim time for religious believers around the world to one extent or another. And uh, I'm just delighted to be able to have the opportunity to tell people about this and talk a little bit about what we can do together. Tom, and one of the things that jumped out at me in some of these recent reports was the new tools that persecutors, whether they're state actors or non-state actors, are using to target and to stifle and silence religious minorities, and in particular the use of artificial intelligence, face recognition in China. What are some of the creepy tools of manipulation that, that these folks are using against the vulnerable? This is really scary stuff, and I'm glad you, you brought it up, Andrea. I mean, if you, those who have read any Chinese history have heard of the Cultural Revolution in the 60s and 70s when Mao Zedong basically tried to kill religion. This is a normal thing for totalitarians to try to do, and he failed because you can't rip religion out of the human race. He tried, but he couldn't. Well, we have today in Xi Jinping, in my opinion, a modern-day cultural revolution, and modern in the sense that it's using not only the old-fashioned torture and rape and brutality that uh, is associated with totalitarian regimes, and in this case I'm speaking of the concentration camps into which Uyghur Muslims are being sent by the Chinese, but also these sophisticated techniques of coercive gathering of DNA, of using uh, cameras throughout churches and other houses of worship, not just relying on informants, which of course they have many of, but also the modern techniques of following people around. And of course the Chinese have an enormous budget for this kind of stuff. We talk about this a little bit because of the, the COVID virus and what it is that we speculate they have done or are doing. But when it comes to religion, they know exactly what they're doing. 
And just a final point on this, the Roman Catholic Church is in particular peril in China because the Chinese understand what the church stands for. They fear what popes have said, particularly St. John Paul the Great. That's why they wouldn't let him come to China. So today they are, they are literally trying to incorporate the Roman Catholic Church into the Chinese Communist Party. And this is really scary stuff, and we have got to act to try to stop it. Now, the situation in China, we know, of course, the vulnerability of the Uyghurs, but there are a lot of religious minorities that are vulnerable to the terrible strong arm and oppressive tactics of the Chinese. Buddhists, the Tibetan Buddhists, our evangelical brothers in Christ, the Falun Gong, which is a sort of quasi-religious group, but the Chinese think they're a religion, and that's good enough for them. Joan and I were speaking about how oftentimes the rule of law can be manipulated in a way to oppress. And uh, Joan, perhaps you can talk a little bit about your observations of the use of blasphemy laws in places like Pakistan and in India to attack religious dissidents and just dissidents in general. Let me just build for a minute on what Tom said. I live normally in Silicon Valley, and it wasn't that long ago when people had sort of high hopes for where China was going, right? Going all the way back to Nixon's rapprochement with China, the idea being that the West was going to help drive China into a better direction. It seemed like that was happening. A lot of technology companies piled on. They've made a lot of money in China. It's a massive market. But now we see that the technology transfer that has happened is also being used for these totalitarian purposes, including things like social credits, where they add up all this information they've collected on you, and then you face penalties from how it could affect your retirement, travel abroad, employment, and many other issues. So it's all connected, and people may not directly confront a threat to their faith just in their day-to-day life if they're not one of these targeted groups like the Uyghurs. But... They can indirectly be constantly under pressure to accommodate and also to suppress speech. But moving on to the blasphemy laws, yeah, I mean, the experience in Pakistan is one of the most egregious. And what was so interesting for me when I was living there was realizing how, you know, you have an accusation of blasphemy, and then literally on a dime, you might have a Muslim community or members of that community, not everybody, go and try to find the person who committed that blasphemy and take them, you know, right then and there, maybe kill them, maybe brutalize them. And in the process, the entire Christian community, if this involves Christians, flees. And then it really turns out in some cases, this was actually a kind of two-step thing It may benefit someone politically, but it may also just benefit someone who wants their property. So this can be used at a variety of different levels to target and punish Christians. And many of them in these societies are already second-class citizens. Some in cultures that that had the caste system were maybe originally from what what Gandhi called Harjans, but, you know, what once was called the untouchables. And so these people may be very much at the bottom of society. They've become Christians but they still have a very low status. They don't have a lot of rights. And so they almost face like double penalties and discrimination economically and socially. And this is being used often, but it can also be wielded against a political opponent who is then accused of blasphemy in some of these societies. So it has a multi-purpose, which is very creepy and something that people have become more sophisticated about. But when it plays out in social media, it can suddenly uh, light a conflagration. Well, and, and you're reminding me of the incredible case 
tragic case of Asya Bibi, a Catholic woman in Pakistan who was targeted for blasphemy and remained in, in jail for several years before she was finally released and now is living out of her country with her family in Canada. It originally started with some fight in the field between different women and women accused her of blaspheming and she lost a big part of her life in service to our Lord Jesus Christ in defending both her faith and truth. Tom, I know that you yeah. guys were great defenders of Asya. Indeed, we were. And I was, as it happens, was meeting yesterday with a senior bishop of the Anglican Church in Pakistan. And we talked about Asya, which, which of course our evangelical friends supported her. But he made the point that this is, this is just touching so many thousands of Christians. Not just that they can be thrown into jail, but the fear of it, the fear of speaking to their neighbors, the fear of being who they are. So this is a devastating problem. One of the ways we've tried to attack this, we have an Islam and Religious Freedom Action Team at the Religious Freedom Institute, and our Muslim colleague who heads that team has published a book saying that in Pakistan in particular, but anywhere, blasphemy should not be applied in the law, and it certainly should not be applied to non-Muslims that this hurts Islam, it's un-Islamic. This is exactly the kind of voice we need to hear coming from the stakeholders in these societies rather than the victims and the minorities. And bringing together those faith communities is very important. Even when it's not benefiting members of your particular faith, it's, it's a benefit for everyone. That's exactly right. You know, sometimes the Catholics and the Protestants, this may be a shock to people who are listening, don't always talk to each other. I'm being a smart aleck. We don't we don't talk to each other nearly enough, and it happens overseas as well. They're being driven together by a common enemy, and, and it's very important that all Christians work together in the love of Christ to do this the right way to defend our faith. Now, Tom, you were an experienced foreign service officer in the Department of State and headed the Office of International Religious Freedom at the Department of State. What are the principles, agreements, any of the commitments that the U.S. has mm. made towards the issue of international religious freedom, and are we meeting those expectations? We have the commitment of the United States Congress having passed unanimously a law that says we will advance religious freedom around the world. It was passed back in the late 90s, signed by President Bill Clinton. There was not one vote in either house against it. And so we are committed as a nation to take this precious right that we call our first freedom and make its value known to others around the world, not only to save people like Asya Bibi from destruction, but also to help stabilize these societies. It's, it's a national security issue for us, too. How are we doing today? There are a number of ways to measure that. I mentioned a minute ago that things have been bad for a long time. They haven't gotten better. So in that sense, I think that we have not had the impact. We've been doing this now for 22 years. We are arguably the most powerful, influential country in the world. I'm disappointed in the effectiveness we've had. Now, that said, I think the most recent ambassador at large, Sam Brownback, took things to a new high for the United States. He was very activist, Secretary of State Pompeo at two major events, ministerials at the State Department, absolutely unprecedented. So things have been doing very well. I'm concerned about the current administration. 
Here we are now, what, six months into it or thereabouts, and there's no ambassador-at-large nominated. We don't know who it will be or what kind of person it will be. The Religious Freedom Institute sent its recommendations we have to the last three administrations on what it should be, not names, but characteristics, qualifications, and what our policy should be doing. So I'm worried. I'll just give you one example that really worries me. The Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, who seems to be a very able man, a very knowledgeable man, one of the first things he did as Secretary of State is to say, under this administration, the United States hereby declares officially, I mean, this wasn't just an off-the-cuff remark, this was a speech, there is no such thing as unalienable rights, or as we would say, inalienable rights. Now, this is basically throwing the First Amendment out the door and the whole notion of uh, God created us with unalienable rights, which is in our Declaration of Independence. Look, this is what the Chinese say. Why on earth would he have chosen that to be one of the first things? He said, what's, what's the reasoning? What's well, I, I don't think it's complicated. I think it is protect the sexual orientation and gender identity ideology that, for better or worse, I mean, everyone has a right in our country to say what they believe on these issues, and that includes this administration. But that's why. What he's trying to do is say all rights are equal. Indeed, that's almost exactly word for word what he said. So religious liberty, for example, is not superior to any other asserted rights, such as the right to change your gender identity or the right of same-sex marriage, even though religious freedom is the first of our freedoms. It's in our Bill of Rights. So, you know, this is, this is a hot topic for the United States, but it harms us overseas. On the one hand, to go after China and then to say, well, all asserted rights are the same. The Chinese assert rights as mm -hmm. well that we, we do not accept as rights. You know, the, the so-called social and economic rights of totalitarians to tell people what to do socially and economically. That's their assertion of rights. The whole notion here is that God created certain rights because he created us in our image and likeness. That's what this country is founded on. And one of those rights is the right of religious freedom. And to simply toss that out like that as if it were just a foreign policy talking point is really disturbing. So we're watching this space. Who's going to be the new Sam Brownback? Very important question for our country and for the world. Now, Tom, I do want to flag one thing that I thought it was surprising and mm. it was wonderful. And that was that Secretary of State Blinken did confirm the declaration of genocide, China's genocide against the Uyghur in the very beginning days of his post at state. And he was carrying, referring back to what Secretary Pompeo had said. But you're right. There's been a lot of other noise and a lot of other priorities. Has there been any follow-up from State Department on that issue? Well, and, first, or anything yeah. else. Let me just say heard. I agree with you, and, and I, I applauded him at the time, and I think it's very important that one acknowledges when, when, a, when a government is throwing a million people into concentration camps. And forced abortions, uh, and sterilizations. Forced, it, it, this is genocidal, and uh, we shouldn't throw that word around loosely. We should be very serious about it, as Secretary Pompeo was. The question of what we do, though, is a very important one, and I want to give him a little bit of, of time here. Because we're talking about a country that has a great deal of leverage over us. We've permitted this to happen, uh, for better or worse. The Chinese are becoming very aggressive in their military development and so forth. So 
It isn't that we have no other interests with China. Indeed, it is that we, they are the largest player in the world of the United States. And we have to be very, very careful. But I think it's important that this administration understand that this human rights issue, so correctly identified as genocidal by the previous administration and this one, be incorporated into the way all of our efforts. It's not a boutique issue. It's part of what we should be doing in terms of our own security and foreign policy. Yeah, I wanted to just say I uh, totally endorse everything Tom has said, and also to point out, I think where the rubber meets the road will be USAID spending on some of these issues, because under Trump, they did start a kind of signature project to work at a grassroots level in places like Nigeria to help beleaguered religious minorities facing persecution to do their documentation to stand up for themselves and sort of They were doing some really interesting initiatives highlighting this at the local level and taking funding, just some funding, away from like big aid agencies, starting with the UN, and giving some of it to local religious groups that were actually more effective and more attuned to what was really happening on the ground and helping their members fight back. So it was really an important initiative, and it's not clear yet, but some of my sources are saying that that money either has or is likely to dry up with a greater focus on advocacy for LGBT issues or or other things, as opposed to that. I think, didn't Blinken say there is no hierarchy of rights, is going to be competing rights, and that's going to be different. And, And one thing that's really driven a lot of our foreign policy is the idea that when you have respect for religious freedom, it's actually integral to other freedoms. Absolutely. It's often the groundwork for other freedoms as opposed to some separate thing that may or may not be connected to it. Well, and there's been great commentary on countries that are open to religious freedom are better for women's rights and even for LGBTQ rights as far as stemming the reaction, especially of non-state actors, towards violence of the other. And I do want to mention as well, Joan, under the prior administration, there was a specific directed aid for the persecuted in Iraq and Syria. And I wonder if that those funds are going to dry up, even though there's particular legislation demanding aid get to them directly and working with groups and organizations, particularly church-run organizations, that were successful at getting the aid to those who most needed it. What are your thoughts, Tom, on what we can expect, especially in the Middle East? I would remind everybody that Iraq is another country that the United States declared was these people were victims of genocide. We made an official declaration, a number of other countries did as well. And you're right, USAID made a, a mighty effort with some success, not as much as I would have liked and certainly not as much as the minorities of Iraq would have liked. I would add that the Knights of Columbus were heroic in raising money for the Christians and other minorities in Iraq. And Archbishop Warda, who is the Catholic Archbishop of Erbil, Iraq, Steve Rasha, who's written a book about this. It's a fascinating issue, but look, we had 5 million Christians in Iraq not too many years ago. We're under 200,000 now. And this is because of ISIS. It's because of the failure of the Iraqi government to do things to keep them there. And as I said, I don't think we've done enough. This is the land where the first generation of Christians walked. This is our homeland in some ways. And so there there are a lot of reasons we should be involved there. But when a country says, hey, these people, you asked it a minute ago, Andrea, you declare genocide. Well, Well, then what? That's just a word. It's a scary word. We have a responsibility to do something for these people, both in China and in Iraq. 
Well, and I'm I'm I was so thrilled that the that Pope Francis went to Iraq and visited with the persecuted and encouraged the church there. I'm wondering when is he going to make his move in, in China? China? Well, it's a complicated subject, as many people will know. The Vatican developed two and a half, three years ago, an accord with the Chinese government in which, in return for giving the Chinese government some control or at least participation in the choice of Chinese bishops, the Vatican made an agreement to go along with things. And of course, the stated aim of the Vatican is to unite the church, which is certainly a good thing in China. It's been divided since the Cultural Revolution, since the Communist Revolution in 1948, but it hasn't worked. It, it simply hasn't worked. It's gotten worse instead of better. And a number of Catholics, including yours truly, have called on the Vatican to pull out of this agreement and allow the church to be what it should be, and that is a public witness for the human rights of all Chinese people, and to resist. Do you know that in some Catholic churches and in some Protestant churches, the first hymn to be sung is to the Chinese premier mm. Xi Jinping? Look, this isn't complicated. We've seen this throughout history. We saw it throughout the 20th century. This is totalitarianism. Yeah. So the Vatican should pull out of this, but thanks be to God, I am not in charge of the Vatican. I do have some influence on uh, the foreign policy of the United States just because I've been in this thing for a long time. And I think the United States could really make a difference in China. We just need to do it. Well, before we wrap up, I want to throw a question to both Joan and Tom. I want to give people a call to action. What can Catholics do, regular lay Catholics in the pews? What can we do to promote international religious freedom? And if you could identify groups that you think are doing great work to support the persecuted, let us know. Uh, first thing to do is pray. Please pray every day of your life for the persecuted Christians and others around the world. You know, it's very Catholic to stand for the persecuted of every religion, not because we think all these religions are the same, Indeed, we don't. We think Catholicism was left by Jesus Christ for everyone. But Jesus wanted people to find him in freedom, not in coercion. Not, that's not faith. That's not the way human beings are to live, not those created in the image and likeness of God. So pray for these people. I think it's fine to pray that they will find Jesus Christ, but pray that they will, the persecution will stop, the torture will stop, the, the misery will be mitigated. And in that regard, act on that. Vote on this. Talk to your members of Congress, write them letters, your senators in particular. They are the ones that will confirm the new ambassador at large. Write anyone that you know that might have an influence on the foreign policy of the United States because we can have an impact here. And then I would add to the extent that you are interested in supporting organizations that do good work. I've already mentioned the Knights of Columbus, which had uh, raised a lot, millions and millions of dollars to support the Christians of Iraq. There are lots of good groups out there. Aid to the Church in Need does great work in the Middle East. The Christian Near East Welfare Association does good work. If you want to support people who do religious freedom in the way that I've described it to you, the Religious Freedom Institute is one of those groups. The Center for Religious Freedom at Catholic University works a bit overseas. That's at the law school. There are a number of great Catholic groups like that that are nonprofits. None of us are making a killing <laughs> in doing this work, but I'll speak for myself and I think for everyone I've named. It's a privilege to have this opportunity to defend our Lord Jesus Christ in this way. Joan, do you have any other recommendations or anything to add on what lay Catholics here in America can do in a call to action to advance the cause of international well, religious freedom? 
I would second everything Tom has said. I mean, I would have said the same. And also, I think, you know, just start in my own experience, just reading about Mm -hmm. the lives of people standing up for their faith, what they're willing to go through. I mean, not only will it strengthen your faith and have you think more deeply about what you are doing to deepen your faith and live your faith and share your faith, but it also will energize you to step up and support them. And I think that's really enormously important. You know, growing up in Southern California, one of the key things I remember that defined my life was regular visits to our family home by missionaries from all over the world. And I really felt like even though I was a privileged American from an affluent background, that I had so much of a deep connection. I shared so much with communities in Africa, you know, individuals and their communities all over the world, people struggling to make it, people encountering persecution. And it really created this very rich understanding of my faith, which has continued to drive much of what I do. So families should share it with their children and share the stories, learn more about the stories. Tom has all those documents and stories on his website and on other websites that are available. Nazarene is another group. Father Benedict Keeley, who's only started out relatively recently, he just felt himself very inspired to share the stories of, of Syrian and Iraqi Christians, and in his own way, shows how much one person can do to advance this. And just to add a more positive note from what Tom said, it is a tough story. We do have a lot of examples of how religious freedom has not changed. But we do also see times when it has, and that happens through advocacy. And even in the Middle East right now with Iraq and Syria, there have been people who have benefited. I think about what happened with the Yazidis and Christians under ISIS, what they faced, the rape, the destruction, the forced conversions. That has stopped effectively. That doesn't mean it's over. The threat still exists. But there has been a respite, and we need to always work for that. Absolutely. Well said, Joan. Joining me for another insightful discussion on religious freedom matters was Joan Desmond, senior editor at the National Catholic Register, and our expert guest was Tom Farr, president of the Religious Freedom Institute. Check out the great work being done at RFI on their website and follow them on Twitter. And thank you for listening. I'm Andrea Pachati Bayer, director of The Conscience Project. Follow me on Twitter at Bayer Pachati. You can read more from The Conscience Project at conscience-project.com. Make sure to listen to all of our episodes with amazing scholars and advocates on why religious freedom matters. You can find the episodes at the Conscience Project site as well as the National Catholic Register website. Thank you very much.